session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Before I talk about the book of the week from the past week, I wanted to announce the book of the week for this week, which is The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And this book came out a few years ago, um, but I think it's even more relevant now where we see how polarized things are, especially here in the United States, but across the world, um, where people not only disagree, but they think the other side who disagrees with them doesn't just think differently, but is immoral, unethical, stupid, and a whole host of other things. And it makes it very difficult for us to find common ground and come together. And we see that um, here in the United States, causing more and more division. So I thought it'd be a good book um, to read and to talk about showing how we can feel a lot about the things we think we are thinking about. Um, I haven't read the book, but I'm familiar with some of Jonathan Haidt's research. So looking forward to reading that this week and sharing it with you on next Monday's show. That's The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. The book of the week from this past week, which I'll talk about tonight, is How We Learn by Benedict Carey, The Surprising Truth About How We Learn and Why It Happens. And uh, this was a really interesting book, more in the field or the realm of cognitive psychology and learning um, studies, uh, but very, very interesting one. And I was very happy to see that a lot of the work that was cited and some of the main theorists that Benedict Carey talked about and even talked to were um, Elizabeth and Robert Bjork from UCLA. And when I was a undergraduate at UCLA, I actually did uh, some research working in Dr. Elizabeth Bjork's lab, and then I did a honors thesis in with her as well. And she was very kind to allow me to take on, um, take me on as a research assistant, as an and as someone who would do an honors thesis with her. And so I was very happy to see her and her husband, who are two of the leading researchers in cognitive psychology, uh, a lot of their work cited here. But this book, how we learn was very interesting because a lot of what we think we know about learning turns out to be wrong. A lot of the things people might tell you if you were going to learn things like um, find a very quiet place to study, study at the same time every day, make sure there's no distractions, study one thing really well, repeat it over and over again until you really know it, and then move on to something else. All of those things turn out to be wrong, or at least a little bit wrong. And that's what I thought was quite interesting about the book 
and something that he talks about even he kind of jokes that we have to try to release the hidden slacker inside of all of us because some of what we think of as the right way to learn isn't quite right and a lot of the things that we might do that we think are us being lazy or we're just trying to distract ourselves or we're trying to not finish the task might actually be helpful or even more helpful than we think. Um, so I'll go through some of the ideas that he shares in the book and I'll share some of my own related to that. Um, but for example, as I mentioned, many people think you should keep the same space to study every time, let's say if you're trying to learn something. But really it turns out that the more you can mix it up, the better it is. If you study things in multiple places, it's more likely to stick better than if you keep studying it in the same place time after time. It, it could be different if you're taking the test, let's say through a class, um, and you're learning it in that class, which usually you don't have the luxury to study in that same room. But we know that context does matter, that the context of where you learn something, or even not just where you learned, how you felt, even, for example, they try to do tests of if you're mildly intoxicated, would you do better on the test if you're mildly intoxicated? There was even a test where people learned words underwater. So these were trained scuba divers, and they would learn words underwater, um, and they actually found that they would do better when they retook the test or when they took a test on those words underwater as opposed to being on dry land, which is quite interesting. So in that sense, it can make a difference. But overall, if you can learn things in a variety of contexts and places, that actually helps things stick a little bit more. Another one is spacing out. A lot of times we think let's study three hours straight and get it over with, but the research finds that if you space it out, let's say you did an hour today, an hour in two days, and an hour two days after that, even though the amount of study time would be the same, because you're breaking it up, you would actually do better. Now, this isn't just because you're breaking it up and maybe that seems like it's going to be easier on your brain. In a way, it's actually because it's harder on your brain because when you have to start studying again, it's a little bit difficult or something that the Bjorks call a desirable difficulty maybe to have to think of the material again and bring it up to your memory. So that serves to make things actually stick better. And this brings up this idea that I'll bring up a few more times throughout this discussion, that actually making yourself uncomfortable while you're studying or learning will help you learn the material better and perform better on the test. So here again, we see that comfort can be a big enemy to us. We always think it's nice to feel comfortable. It should be good to do things that feel comfortable. But it turns out that actually comfort is our enemy when it comes to learning. Um, which I'll get to a little bit later as well. So another uh, important way we can help ourselves learn is through testing. And not just the testing in school, although that could be it too, but even when we test ourselves. Um, and this also means that we should test ourselves before we really know the material, which might seem counterintuitive. Even they've done things, they did a, a study where they would give people a final exam the first day of the class and they didn't know almost anything, so they would bomb that final, and it wasn't like that was going towards their grade, but it actually helped them learn things better later on because it makes the mind think about certain things, it tells you what things to pay attention to, and helps you retain more information later on. Or if you're trying to learn something on your own, sometimes people think just keep reviewing the same thing over and over again. 
read that same material over and over again till it's drilled into your head. But this is not the best way to learn. If you're, for example, trying to memorize a poem, you might think, okay, just keep reading the poem over and over again. But actually what will help you much more is if you, let's say, read the poem for, let's say, half the time that you have to study, and then the other half try to come up with the poem on your own. Even if you don't remember all of it, try to write down as much as you can and then go back and look at what you missed and then do it again and do it again. Or I've seen some people, well, they'll write out the poem and they'll take out a few of the words and then try to fill in those words. Then the next time they'll take out even more of the poem and keep doing it that way. And that process of trying to think of what's missing is a lot better than just looking at it over and over again. And actually the problem with looking at the same thing over and over again is that it creates this false sense of knowing the material that they call fluency. And we've all been there before. I remember being in undergrad and studying for a test and you keep reviewing your notes and your notes become so familiar to you that you think you know the material so well. Okay, after I wrote this, it's this part, then this part, then this part. Yeah, next page, I know what's at the top of the page. And you feel really good because you've almost memorized the way your notes are laid out. But it doesn't mean you actually know the material really well when you then walk into the test, which is not going to be your notes, and you have to come up with the information on your own. It's a lot harder. So he talks about how one of the biggest um, reasons why we bomb a test that we sometimes think we're prepared for is this idea of fluency. Because when we studied the material, we studied it in a way that made us think we know it very well because we kept looking at the same things over and over again. And those things felt familiar, but it didn't mean we actually learned the material. It's much better for us to try to fill in the blanks. Even things like flashcards can be good because it makes you have to think of what's there, not just read it. Or testing yourself. Or as we know, teaching someone else is a very good way to learn something. A lot of people say you don't really know something until you have to teach someone else. Even for me, having to do the book summaries each week has helped me learn the books better. So thank you again to the listeners for allowing me to do this because each week I get to understand these books better because I have to prepare and then talk about them and try to teach them. And that helps us learn. So taking those kind of breaks of even self-testing and self-quizzing or teaching someone else will help us learn. So if you're you know, in a small study group or book club, it could be good to study something, but also if you teach each other something, that can actually help you guys learn better too. So if you're doing that, that's a great idea of a way to learn things better. Now, moving on to some other um, topics that he covers about learning and how we sometimes misunderstand or have misconceptions about how we learn is about taking breaks or distracting ourselves. And even when I say getting distracted, it has such a negative connotation that I can feel when I say it. Oh, I got distracted or you got distracted too much. But the research finds that distractions can be very good, um, especially when it comes to things like problem solving or being creative. We are much better when we take some breaks. So people are given puzzles or riddles, whether it's a verbal one or something they have to try to figure out, putting materials together. And what happens is when we're stuck we get stuck in a way of thinking and we have a hard way of seeing anything differently at that moment. And because of that, it's hard for us to get anywhere else or get further in the problem, especially when it needs an aha moment or a moment of insight. But they found that when people take a short break, doing something else, going for a walk, playing a little game, 
that actually helps them. Um, sometimes they call it incubation with a short break or percolation with a long break. And we know that when we're not finished with something, if you're trying to figure out a problem or if you're a writer or if you're coming up with an idea, our subconscious, and it's hard to exactly define what's going on, but it seems that our brain is still working at the problem even when we're not actively sitting at the desk working on it. And this is why so often you'll have an insight while you're brushing your teeth or in the shower or going for a walk, where I know I've had moments where I'm almost falling asleep and I think of something, or uh, you know, you're driving and something comes to your mind. So we see that even though we think if you want to work at something, you should just be working at it nonstop until you're done, it seems that actually taking breaks, getting a little distracted can be helpful in allowing us to become more flexible in our thinking, allowing our brain to think things through a little bit more while we feel like we're actually distracted. So breaks are not actually a bad thing. They can be a good thing. And sometimes actually not taking a break can be a bad thing. Uh, another topic he mentions is what they call interleaving. Now, usually when we're studying something or when we're teaching something, we study one thing and we study it fully and they call that block studying and then we go to the next thing. And then we study that fully and we go to the next thing. We think that's the way to learn. But what they've found is actually when you mix things up, that is actually more helpful. So rather than learning just one type of math problem for a week and then the next kind of math problem, the next week and the next kind of math problem, it's better if you're mixing it up because we need to have to think about what the problem is, what the right strategy is when it comes to test time. When it comes to test time, they don't say use quadratic formula on all these problems or all of these are going to be factoring questions. You have to be able to look at the question and recognize what it is and what it asks of you to do. And so when we're studying, we want to do the same thing. But here we see that comfort is, again, our enemy because it feels good to keep doing the same kind of problems and feeling like they're easy and feeling like it's not challenging and like you get it. But then when it comes time for the test, you realize you don't know really what's asked of you because you don't understand the material very well. Uh, and he also talks about the importance of sleep when it comes to learning, that a lot of times you learn a lot of things, but it seems like during sleep, your brain is actively sorting through things or figuring things out. So it can be very important to get enough sleep, which might seem obvious, but sometimes we know that if we're going to take a test or an exam, I remember pulling lots of all-nighters when I was at UCLA, and I see that that probably wasn't the best thing. Now, cramming can work in the short term, but it turns out that when we cram, we don't remember the material long-term as well, which makes sense. So if you're taking, let's say, uh, algebra class, and then you're going to take algebra two the next term, the problem with cramming is that when you show up to algebra two the first day, you won't remember a lot of the material that you learned from algebra one if you were cramming. So I want to just give a few examples or analogies of this idea of why being comfortable is actually a problem when you're studying. It reminds me of exercise. If you keep doing the same workout, it might feel good because you feel comfortable and it's easy for you but it won't lead to more growth and strength. And probably everyone has been there. You keep doing the same routine every day and it feels good, but you don't get results anymore after a while. So if we're studying, we get the same results. If you study in a way just that feels comfortable, you're not going to get better at what you're doing. And so what you actually want to do is to feel uncomfortable during the practice so you get more comfortable during the test. 
But the problem is when we're studying, we often don't like the feeling that we don't understand what's happening or we don't get it. We want to feel more confident. So we think we should study in a way that feels good. But this is misleading and misusing our time. You want to study in ways that actually are challenging, that make you think about things again that you didn't think you can think about or remember something from a previous lesson, even though right now you're thinking about something else. So we have to resist doing what feels good while we're studying and learning, or we think we're learning, to try to make sure we're more prepared for the test. We have to make ourselves ready to feel uncomfortable, to then feel more comfortable when the time comes to apply that knowledge. So I thought the book was really good, How We Learn by Benedict Carey, in showing a lot of the ways that we have been told we should study and we should learn, and making us realize that the research is actually showing us this is not the case, but as is often the case, a lot of research is done, but it doesn't reach the general public because it stays in scientific journals. And so I think this book is a great way of hopefully spreading some of that knowledge, and I'd recommend it to anyone because we all are learning, and so it's not just for students, um, but especially if you're a student or a teacher or anyone involved in teaching, this can be very helpful, but just to anyone who wants to understand better how we learn and also how we don't learn or what we can do to make ourselves use our time most efficiently. And sometimes that doesn't mean just cramming or reading the same things over and over again. There's other strategies that can be more helpful. So that was How We Learn by Benedict Carey. And again, the book of the week for this week is The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You know, this show is uh, focused on mental health overall, psychology and mental health. And so every so often I... Think it's good to talk about what that even means and i'm not saying that in this segment i'm going to propose my grand theory of mental health but i did want to address some key issues uh, that i think are important that have come to mind recently about mental health and what it is and also what it isn't and in some ways related to the book i was just talking about how we learn by benedict carey and how sometimes the ways we think or the myths we have about learning actually get in the way of doing it well. There's a lot of myths about mental health that I think get in the way of people achieving their best uh, mental health or highest level of well-being overall because of things we've been told or things we things we believe or things we things we think we're supposed to do. For example, one of the big ones for me is the idea that being happy is good mental health and being sad is bad mental health or positive feelings, good mental health, negative feelings, bad mental health. Now to an extreme, yes, there is something to that. If you are severely depressed and sad most of the time and hopeless and feel like hurting yourself or ending your life because of how depressed you are, yes, I'm not saying that's a sign of good mental health at that time. Um, but most of the time we're talking about emotional experiences in the moment. And a healthy person to me is not someone who's always happy. That's actually someone who's not in touch with their feelings. A healthy person is one who is in touch with their feelings and can respond to them in a healthy way and cope with those feelings in a healthy way. And 
another critical part to this is can tolerate the negative feelings. So we sometimes think that a strength is to not get angry or to not get sad, or if we get sad to immediately get rid of that feeling. But this comes with the assumption that, again, these sad feelings are bad feelings or that negative feelings are not good. Where feelings or are what we experience emotionally are not good or bad, they're giving us information. So when you feel happy about something, you pay attention to that feeling and you also pay attention to what might be making you happy to try to understand that because that's information. Here's something that feels good. And even actually, if we look a little bit deeper, just because something feels good or makes you happy doesn't mean it's a good thing because sometimes people can get very happy about talking bad about other people. They get together and they say, did you hear what so-and-so did? Oh, I can't believe he did that. He's so this, and I never do that. I can't believe he acts in that way. And you get this feeling of superiority and you feel really good. So if you don't really look at it deeply enough, you might just say, this feels good and let's keep doing it. But if you look a little more deeply, you see, wait, I'm feeling good, probably because I'm putting someone else down, and that makes me feel better about my own insecurities or weaknesses, and this is actually not a good thing. So to just stop it, even what you feel is not enough. We always have to look at the why to look at what's going on. And if we want to be mentally healthy, we have to do first the what, check in with what we are feeling and try to understand that, but if the, then even more deeply, the why. Why am I feeling this way? And I want to understand that better. So any emotion, any feeling is just giving us information. Okay, I'm feeling sad. Rather than I have to get rid of this sad feeling immediately because it doesn't feel good, we want to be able to recognize the feeling first, understand it, and see where it might be coming from. Why am I feeling sad right now? And unfortunately, many of us, almost all of us, have certain associations we have with certain feelings that color the way we experience them. A very common one is that sadness is equivalent to weakness, or even crying especially is a sign of weakness. If you cry, that's weak. If you cry, people can take advantage of you. If you cry, especially you're not a man. Um, all those types of things can come with an emotion like uh, crying or with the feelings of sadness, that you shouldn't feel that way because it doesn't feel very strong. And that's true. And so many people, if they're going to pick a negative emotion, they'd rather get angry than get sad because at least anger feels strong. I'm going to do something. And sadness feels weak. Now, there's definitely a place for anger too. So I'm not saying that we should not be angry. Anger is also a healthy emotion. That's another mistake that people have, that if you are healthy, nothing should make you angry. If you're emotionally healthy, mentally healthy, nothing should make you angry. And that's not the case. If someone mistreats you, that should make you angry. Now, what you do with that anger, that's a big part of your mental health, how you respond. How do you cope with that feeling? Do you act out in violence and aggression? That would be an unhealthy response. Or can you express it to that person in a healthy way? Or maybe that person won't be the appropriate outlet, but in some other way, deal with it. That's going to be a healthy response. But just the feeling of sadness or the feeling of anger in and of itself is not a sign of lack of health or being unhealthy. But going back to this idea of sadness being weakness. Now, 
it can feel very weak to, to get sad or get down. And sometimes we can think, this means I'm weak, I shouldn't let something bother me. But we have to accept that we're human beings, and just like things physically hurt us, and if you don't get oxygen, you're going to die, and if something physically touches your body in certain ways, it can cut your skin or hurt your body in different ways. Emotionally, we also are going to have uh, things that are going to hurt us. We're not going to be impervious to emotional hurt is part of being human. And we have to look at that with the same compassion we would a child, not to make ourselves feel small, but to recognize that if something hurts us, it deserves being responded to and listened to. What made me sad? Why am I feeling this way? But if we already go into it with this idea that sad is bad, sad is weak, we're going to want to not feel that sadness, and we're not going to hear what it's telling us, not understand ourselves better. Just like if your knee is starting to hurt, but you want to tell yourself, I'm not the kind of person that gets knee pain, you might ignore it, but then severely damage your leg even more or your body in other ways. But listening to the pain isn't itself a sign of weakness. It's a sign of understanding, of getting in touch with yourself. So this is a key component to me of mental health. It's not about not feeling things, but it's actually being in touch with what you're feeling, being in touch with those feelings and why they are occurring. So to be sad, although maybe doesn't feel good, can be very meaningful, especially in the context of all of our relationships, but specifically romantic relationships. If you're feeling sad about something happening in the relationship, sometimes we might not feel safe enough to be vulnerable with our partner. Now, that could be because uh, usually I like to look at these things at three different levels or three different domains. It could be about you, that you have a hard time expressing vulnerability, expressing sadness, or even accepting that you're feeling sad. Or it could be your partner. They are not very sensitive or empathic. So if you share things with them, they respond in such a harsh or critical way or in a way that doesn't make you feel good that you don't want to open up with them. Or the third way is the dynamic between the two of you. There could be something in the interplay of you and your partner that makes these types of conversations not go very well. And it could be one or all of the three, um, but there could be some reason why you're not sharing that. Now, when you don't share that sadness, if it's about the relationship, if it's about something your partner did, unfortunately, you're missing an opportunity for closeness, an opportunity to actually, one, let your partner know how you feel and how, let's say, they have hurt you, and then two, let them understand you, and very importantly, potentially make a change in how they react or behave in the future to not give you that feeling. Because if something made you sad, in all likelihood, that same thing is going to make you feel sad again. If something burns you or you're allergic to something, you're likely going to be allergic to it again. And if your partner does not know that what they did hurt you, they're likely to do that same thing again if you don't let them know, if you're not giving them that awareness. And so if you express that sadness, it does take some courage because it's not easy to be vulnerable. And this is why, especially for men who have more of a problem with expressing vulnerability because they feel like it's weakness and if they're weak, they're not manly, they're not masculine, they're not attractive. But for women, this can be an issue as well. But if we don't express that, we don't give ourselves and our partner that opportunity to create this 
closeness, to actually have this connection over what's going on. Unfortunately, most people or many people, and oftentimes uh, all of us have probably done this at some point, we put that sadness away or pretend like it's not there, but we can't escape our feelings. They're still there. And this will either come out in, in one of a few ways, but one of them is that very often when people are not expressing their vulnerabilities, instead they express it in another way with anger, maybe passive aggressive or maybe just directly aggressive, they'll express that negative feeling to their partner. And unfortunately, when we act out passive aggressively or aggressively, what we're doing is we're creating conflict and we're creating space between ourselves and our partner. So uh, the classic kind of stereotypical example is, uh, oh, let's say husband and wife are at a party and the woman is talking to someone and the husband gets jealous. And the husband on the drive home because he doesn't want to be vulnerable and share that he felt jealous or had these feelings. Instead, he says mean things to the wife or even worse, might get violent or aggressive with her. So instead of expressing the sadness that he is experiencing, he's expressing it as anger in another way to get that feeling out. And also it might feel more comfortable for him because now he feels strong. I'm being a man. I'm being aggressive. I'm showing her how I feel. And usually in his mind, it's uncomfortable connected or unrelated, he might not realize he's acting out because of the sadness or because of that jealousy. He just thinks what she said was stupid or she's being annoying or whatever else, or she's doing something that is upsetting him and he's just expressing himself. So this is why, again, it's so important and the key element of mental health is to have that awareness of our feeling, the what and the why. Because when we don't have it and we try to, we go on to autopilot, we act out in these types of ways. But I've seen this play out so many times in relationships where you see that what could be a moment of closeness, you hurt my feelings, I'm going to let you know how you hurt my feelings. And this will give us an opportunity to get closer for you to recognize what hurt me, for you to understand me better, for us to resolve this and actually get much closer. It becomes a cause of division and pushing each other away. I'm not going to share with you. We're going to lose that opportunity for closeness. And on top of that, I'm going to push you away or hurt you or say something mean to you or withdraw from you. Another response, which is kind of a passive aggressive one, is that I just won't talk to you as much for the next few days or I'll be a little bit colder with you. All of which, of course, are going to lead to more distance when there actually was an opportunity for closeness. So understanding our what we feel, our why, but also even the ideas or judgments we have about different feelings can be very important. What do I think about sadness? What do I think about anger? How do I feel about those feelings even? Do I feel ashamed to be sad? Do I feel ashamed to be angry? For some people, anger is that feeling that they never let themselves feel. And we sometimes call these shadow feelings. So I'm never going to get angry at anyone. But instead, they fake being nice which leads to its own issues because the anger and resentment will build up within them until they maybe end the relationship or explode in some way. And that's not healthy either. So mental health is a very complex issue. So as I said, I wasn't planning to tackle all of it in this one segment, but I wanted to bring up a few of those issues that I've seen or have come to mind recently that I wanted to talk about. And I might continue them after the break because we've reached last commercial break, but feel free to call in 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. 
back. Before the break, I was talking about some concepts of mental health, and specifically our relationship to our feelings and trying to know our feelings first, what are we feeling, and then the why. And then also understanding what are some of the judgments or feelings we have about our feelings, because that can be really critical. We might not think about this, but sometimes we worry or we feel anxious about being anxious, and that can be worse than the anxiety itself. We worry, what's the next time I'm going to get a panic attack? Sometimes they call this secondary anxiety. Or you feel sad about something, and the sadness doesn't feel good, but what can be even worse is how much you beat yourself up about being sad. I can't believe I'm sad about this. That means I'm such a this, or I'm such a that. I'm weak, or I'm bad, or I can't believe I care about this when there's so many bigger things that people go through in life. And I see it all the time in the couch in my office where people feel things about what they're feeling that is oftentimes much worse than the original feeling itself. And so the more we can stay present with our feelings, the better we are, the more we can accept them. And this is why I really value some of what we see in meditation and mindfulness, the idea of non-judgmental awareness, I think could be very valuable, not just when you're meditating, but something to carry with you. Uh, every moment of your life of just having awareness of what you're feeling, of what's going on in your head, but without judgment, without saying, I should feel this or I shouldn't feel this. I should think about this or I shouldn't think about it. It's just about noticing, oh, I'm thinking about that meeting tomorrow, or I'm thinking about that girl or that guy that didn't call me back. And rather than saying, oh, why do I care about them? They're not thinking about me. Why am I thinking about them? Just noticing what we are feeling and just being with that. And the analogy I really like when it comes to uh, feelings, and there's lots of them that work and, and relate to mindfulness, is the idea that feelings come and go, kind of like waves. And if you're at the beach and you see the waves coming in, there's a wave that comes in and then it goes, and one might come in more strong, one comes in more weak, they might have different ways they're coming in. Our feelings are the same way. Some feel stronger, some feel weaker, some feel good, some feel bad. But just like the waves, they don't last forever. They don't stay forever. And so one might come in really strong and we don't like it, but it's going to go away. And another one will come in afterwards in its place. And also like waves, we can't either keep the wave in or push it out. If you're at the ocean and you see a wave and you don't like it, you can't push it away to make it not come in. Or if you like a wave, you can't try to hold on to the water and not let it go back into the ocean. You have to just let it come and go. And so our feelings are the same way. You might, might not like the way something feels, but you can't just erase it or get rid of it. And unfortunately, people try to do that, either by avoiding the feeling or denying it, or coping in unhealthy ways, drugs, alcohol, sex, food, gambling, whatever it might be, to just try to escape from the feeling. And so this is another element that I wanted to talk about heavily in this segment is something I mentioned in the previous segment, and that's frustration tolerance or distress tolerance. The idea, which I think is actually such a big part of mental health, of how well we can handle the negative feelings, the ones that don't feel good. I don't even like saying negative because that makes it seem like we shouldn't have them or we should get rid of them, but the ones that don't feel pleasant. How well we can tolerate them is actually a strong sign of mental health. 
And this sometimes is paradoxical for people. They might think that doesn't make sense to, to be okay with feeling bad. That's not a good thing. And here we have to make the distinction between tolerating or being aware of feeling bad and staying feeling bad or trying to stay in that feeling. Because as much as I said we really can't hold on to those feelings, sometimes people do try to. So maybe they get sad and they choose to stay feeling like a victim about what's going on. And so they stay sad for a very long time and they don't get out of it. They don't let themselves get out of it because they get something out of feeling weak and feeling like a victim. So sadness itself is not weakness, but if we try to exaggerate our sadness or stay with our sadness longer or make sure everyone knows we were hurt in some way or don't let ourselves get back up from being sad once the feeling is actually passing us, that can be um, a problem. That can be a sign of weakness to me, that you're staying with the sadness. Now, even why someone might do that has reasons that it would be good for the person to try to understand. But I want to make clear this distinction because lots of people, when you tell them, you know, it's good to feel all your feelings, to be aware of what's there. They say, so what, you want me to be sad all the time? Or I see people uh, in therapy and their kid starts crying and they start to tell them, don't cry or don't be sad. And I let them know, you know, it's okay to let him or her cry. And they say, what, he should just be sad all the time? And I'm saying, no, not all the time. He just started crying two seconds ago. It's not that we're saying he should cry forever, but right now when he's sad, we can allow him to feel sad, give him that space. And so when we have this idea or understanding that I can tolerate this feeling and that this feeling is not forever, so even if it doesn't feel good now, I know it too shall pass, it will go away, that can make us a lot healthier in the long run because we don't jump to extreme conclusions. Well, first, we don't ignore or deny the feelings. That could be the first problem. We're not being aware of what's making us sad or mad, so we keep doing the same things. We keep staying in the same relationships. We keep living the same way in ways that don't feel very good for us. We're missing that information. But the second thing is if we're not denying it and we let it come in a little bit and we try to get rid of it, well, that's when we start doing unhealthy things. If I can't tolerate my feeling of sadness, then I might turn to drugs or alcohol to numb that pain or to make me feel good. If I think that being sad is so bad that I have to get rid of it, then I'm going to look for anything I can to get rid of those feelings when they show up. And this is what's so important for parents to teach their kids. Unfortunately, most parents, because they think they should never let their kids be sad, uh, first, going back, they can't tolerate their own sadness, for example, so they can't tolerate their kid's sadness or they think it's so bad if they're sad or they're being a bad parent if their kid is sad. If their child expresses sadness, they respond almost with anxiety and panic. And so sometimes I use the word crisis with the first I being a Y, that as soon as someone starts crying, for many people it's a crisis that has to be immediately dealt with and erased. So your kid is crying. Most parents, they think my only job right now is to get my kid to stop crying. Now, if you have a baby, yes, this is usually the case because crying is the only way they can communicate to you they need something. Does the baby need to be fed, be burped, be changed? Are they tired? What is it? That's how they communicate. But as your children get older, 
we want to realize, and of course we want to be sensitive to their crying, that they're sad. So it's not about ignoring that, absolutely not. But it's actually being there with their sadness, trying to understand what's there. And so sometimes just giving them something to take away the sadness is actually not the thing that's going to help them the most. We want to help them understand what they're feeling and also understand that it's okay. A very big gift that parents can give their children is the feeling that even when you're sad, even when the feelings feel very big, everything is okay. So I care that you're feeling sad. I'm with you. It feels painful. I can understand that it hurt you. But when you look at me and you see that I care, but I still feel like I'm okay, I'm in control, I'm not overwhelmed, that gives the kid a feeling of calm that it will be okay. Things will be okay. And having these kinds of feelings is okay, which is going to happen again and again in their life. So they get sad, they come to you. And Winnicott had this term of the container, that you contain these big feelings for your kid. So your kid comes and they're crying and they're so sad and you pick them up and you let them know that you recognize they're sad. So you're being empathic, but also you can handle it. That's a really big gift to give to your kids. Unfortunately, a lot of parents, as I was saying before, they respond with panic. Oh, oh you're crying. What do we do? It's not a big deal. Don't cry. Or no, it's not a big deal. Here, here, play with this. Play with this. Or look here, look here. Don't feel the sadness anymore. Or don't be sad about that. Or you didn't fall that hard. Or it doesn't matter what they say. Whatever we can say to try to eliminate and erase the pain. But we're also showing the kid that one, what they're feeling is so bad and so overwhelming for even us to handle. And two, that it's kind of a scary situation. I don't even know what to do with it. It's making mommy or daddy overwhelmed. And so you see this a lot where kids, they start to pick up on how their parents respond to how they feel. And if you show your child that when he or she gets sad and starts crying, you can't handle it. Unfortunately, what you teach them is a few things. One, you know what? It's probably better not to show these kinds of feelings to mom or dad, which they're going to feel, but now they're going to hide. So they don't go away. They just go away from showing them to you. So now they're going to deal with them on their own. And two, a very a deeper one, is that this feeling that those feelings that I have are bad because look how they make mom or dad feel. They get sad or they get upset or they get stressed. Those are bad. And because I feel them, I must be bad or this must be a bad part of me. And so this is why many people learn that those feelings make them bad or make them unlovable and they should hide those feelings. But unfortunately, because inevitably we're all going to feel all the feelings, we still experience them, but then we internalize this message that that makes me bad. And so, so many of us walk around trying to hide all of those negative feelings from each other, even people that we're very close to, because we think no one could love those and no one's going to like those, or they're going to be a burden on other people, while all the while knowing within ourselves that I have those feelings that make me bad. Where the truth of the matter is, all of us have those feelings, every one of us, and they don't make us bad. And not only can other people tolerate them, we can tolerate them too. Sadness is okay. Crying is okay. Anger is okay. We can handle all of these feelings, both individually within ourselves and when someone else is experiencing them and expressing them to us. We all have that ability.
but we have to be willing to accept that these things are okay and realize that even if our instinct tells us because of maybe our own childhood and how our parents responded to our feelings, that these feelings are not okay, that in fact they are. It's okay to be sad and mad. These feelings go away. They don't make me good or bad or make me weak or make me anything else. It's part of being human. Humans are going to experience all the emotions that we have, and that's okay. So as a parent, I always say your job is not to make your kids happy. Your job isn't to make sure your kids are smiling and happy every moment. And as an individual, you should not be striving towards being happy and smiling every moment. That's not living a real life and being genuinely connected to yourself, to your experiences, and to your relationships. Sometimes you're going to get sad. Sometimes you're going to get mad. Sometimes you're going to feel good. Sometimes you're going to feel glad. I wasn't really trying to make that rhyme, but it ended up going that way. So you're going to feel all of these things, and that's okay. That's part of being human. And the more we can tolerate our various feelings, the healthier we are. So to me, genuine health isn't about feeling a certain way all the time. That's actually unhealthy to me. It's more about tolerating and being able to accept the various things that you feel, being in touch with them, trying to understand them, approaching them without judgment, and then experiencing them and then expressing them in healthy ways and coping with them in healthy ways. That's what we want to try to do. But the only way we can do that is to first remove all those assumptions we have about what it is okay to feel and not okay to feel and what's good and bad feelings and what we are allowed to express and not allowed to express. And again, going back to the previous segment, to the people closest to us, the more we can express our genuine feelings in healthy ways, the closer we get, even if that is sadness or anger, the closer we get to one another. But the more we hide them, the more it creates distance, both from ourselves and to those who are closest to us and our closest relationships. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show. Thank you to Amir here in the studio and everyone listening out there. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.